0: Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people and how to apply that truth to today's issues, trends, and culture. You can learn more about the program and our church when you visit walkintruth.com. And join us tomorrow for Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 57 called, He Revives the Heart of the Controller. Isaiah
1: 57 is what you want tonight. Isaiah 57. So if you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah, and uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we've been seeing what God has to say to us through the book of Isaiah, and we've come all the way now to chapter 57. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, so we're kind of coming into that home stretch. Some people are saying amen, um, but... I know a lot of you have just fallen in love with the book of Isaiah. And I also know that you've seen so many New Testament references to the book of Isaiah, maybe ones that you didn't realize were there before. Of course, the focal point of the book of Isaiah is chapter 53, because there we have the introduction, um, and it's one of four servant songs to the servant of Yahweh, and he is the Messiah. And in that majestic chapter of chapter 53, Jesus is put on display 700 years before he was ever born, and we get some detail about what he would do, how he would be crushed for our iniquities, how he would bear our sorrows and our griefs, how the Lord would lay upon him the iniquity of us all. And then what followed Isaiah 53 is response chapters. A worldwide invitation goes out in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. And God says to the wicked, turn from your way, call upon me while I'm near, while I can be found, and the door will be opened up to you. Isaiah 55 begins by telling us that what we when we come to the Lord, we don't have to buy our way in. The price has already been paid. It's free. All we have to do is enter in by faith and turn from our sins. And then as we looked at Isaiah 56 two weeks ago, we realized that God was saying, though, when you turn from those sins, if salvation is going to be real, there's going to be fruit in keeping with repentance. There's going to be some way to measure the conversion on the inside by what happens on the outside. Now, we've been quick to point out that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Good works do not save us but they do testify to a true salvation. Good works are the fruit that flow from the root of grace, saving grace, and faith in Jesus Christ. There is going to be some evidence that you know the Lord in your life. Now, you can have seasons where you have a dry patch, you can have ups and downs, but in the end, there's going to be some fruit that remains and it's fruit in keeping with repentance. As God uh, addresses these issues through Isaiah, he ends by addressing the leadership in Israel because Israel was known as God's people. Jerusalem was God's city. So how could the people of God, the apple of his eye, miss it? And after all, how could the leadership of such a special people miss it? And God lays this right at the doorstep of the leaders. And he says these words, this is the end of Isaiah 56, nine, all you beasts of the field, God is calling and now the beasts, all you beasts in the forest come to eat his God's watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing All of them are dumb dogs. That speaks of mutinous, not intellectual stupidity. They are unable notice to bark. They don't warn the people. They are dreamers. When they lie down in their bed, they love to slumber and dream. And the dogs, this is another thing about the leaders, they are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have no discernment. They have all, notice all of them, turned to their own way. Each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say. This is their mantra. Despite the fact that the beasts are coming in verse 9, they've been assembled. God is bringing judgment through Babylon. They say, the leadership says, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. They're living in uh, what we might call leadership denial. They cannot see the signs of the times. They cannot read what's really going on. And that is because they are blind. They are in leadership for the wrong reasons. It has corrupted them. They are not warning the people properly. And God lays the first responsibility at the doorstep of leaders. Now, we talked about in several recent messages the responsibility of the watchman. If you're put on the wall, your call on the wall is to what? It is to warn the people if there's a coming danger. That is your job. If you warn them and they do not flee, then their blood is on their own heads. But if you don't warn them, if you become like that mute dog, you don't bark when the intruder's coming, this is the imagery, then their blood... This is radical, is on your hands. And Acts 20, 26, Paul picks up the imagery from Ezekiel 3 and says this very thing to the Ephesian elders. So this is a New Testament concept. He said, therefore, I am innocent of the blood of, remember? All men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel or purpose of God. And then Paul goes on to talk about how he warned them night and day for a period of three years, warned them about false teachers, and gave them a charge that they are to do the same. And that is the call of the watchman. That is the call. The modern face of it is a pastor. A pastor is a watchman on the wall. And our job is to make sure the the sheep are not only equipped, but to make sure that they are uh, spared from wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's why oftentimes you will hear me say very straightforward things from this pulpit, because I don't want you to be in any way manipulated or ripped off uh, by those who are false prophets or uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Now we, we get a palace view if you will of the blindness of the leadership and now we're going to get kind of a ground level view because the people are not off the hook. The responsibility of leadership is heavy, but the people have a responsibility as well. And for those of us who listen to certain leaders, we listen to teachers, our job is to have discernment. Our job is not to just throw to throw money at ministries that we may know have red flags. And also, we have to be discerning when it comes to national leaders. And a lot of people are struggling with, you know, the idea of how do I vote in this election? And I said this two weeks ago, I'll say it tonight. Find the candidate that is as close to biblical principles as you can get and vote for them. Because if you don't vote, then don't complain. If you sit there on the sidelines and you don't cast a vote, to try to at least bring change to this nation. You live in a democratic society, and you can weigh the issues. There's plenty of information available to all of us to know where candidates stand on issues that are important to God, Um, all the way from the lowest uh, issue that you can think of to the highest one, from social issues to abortion, from things that have to do with uh, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, the view of Israel, these are all things that should be on your radar screen to see how your leaders measure up to God's word. Your ultimate objective standard is God's word, not anything else, not my opinion, not somebody else's opinion on some uh, television show. It is the word of God that becomes the standard of measure for everything. Now keep in mind that when you vote in terms of national elections, you're not voting for a pastor, right? It would be nice if we, I suppose if we had a pastor in the White House, but that's not what we're going to get, right? You're voting for a leader of a country, so you have to keep that in mind when you're trying to understand how to discern um, through these difficult issues. Now, in fifty-seven-one, uh, the implication is clear, and I and I showed this to you as we ended last time that there were righteous people speaking out against the corrupt leadership of Israel. Notice it says in 57.1, the righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. And devout men, the combination of Hebrew words includes the word hesed, which speaks of the unfailing love of God, but here it's the unfailing love of devout men. Men, you could put it this way, of unfailing love are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away, notice, from evil. Now we'll talk about that in a moment, but the first thing I want you to see is that though there were many corrupt leaders in Israel, there were righteous men and they were few and far between, and they were calling the nation out. They were saying to the the leaders of the nation, you can't behave that way. That's not the way we worship here. That's not what we do here. And the implication, and you can read, you know, if you want to study commentaries on this, at least reading between the lines is that some of these men apparently were disappearing. They would speak out against corruption and they were disappearing from the landscape. And the further implication is that nobody cared about it. Nobody was really pursuing to inquire, what happened to that guy? He was just off the radar screen and nobody seemed to care about it. And these were righteous men. Notice men who were men of devoutness and unfailing love. Jesus said, men, people will know that you are my disciples because of your love one for another. You see, what drove righteous men to speak out against evil was not some holy rampage that they decided to take up one day. Look, I got better things to do, and I'm not into shaking bushes just to shake bushes. But I will tell you this. When I see something evil and something that hurts the heart of my God, then it is, uh, it is incumbent upon me to do what? To say something. These were men of unfailing love. They were devout men. And in their generation, they were concerned about the same things you're concerned about, children and grandchildren, and what's gonna happen to our nation What's going to happen to the city that I love, the people that I love? That's why they were concerned. These were real issues for their day. And they stood up and they said, you know what? I'm going to be counted. And I may risk even my own life. They were loyal worshipers of Yahweh, one writer says. These men were characterized by the love of God, which then caused them to do what they did. And the cry comes out. The righteous man is perishing, and nobody seems to care. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Pastor Michael has an invitation for you. If you're looking for a fellowship to participate in, and you're anywhere within driving distance of the Inland Empire, I pastor a church along with other pastors. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. And we do two Sunday morning services each Sunday, 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We happen to be moving through the book of Philippians at the current moment. Hey, plan on joining us this weekend. We'd love to have you. I'd love to meet you. I'll meet you right there at the donuts. Maybe we'll split a maple bar. (laughs) And hey, remember, if you can't join us, if you're not within the Inland Empire, then find a good, healthy Bible teaching church and go and serve the Lord because he's worthy. And when we're part of the body, an active part of the body, man, it makes a big difference in our lives and the lives of others. So make sure you're plugged in to fellowship this weekend. God bless you. Learn more about Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, where Pastor Michael Lance serves as senior pastor, when you visit walkintruth.com or call 844-48-TRUTH. That's 844-48-TRUTH.
0: We'd love to see who's listening. So please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just do a search for Walkin' Truth Show. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walkin' Truth.
1: That I love. That's why they were concerned. These were real issues for their day. And they stood up and they said, you know what? I'm going to be counted. And I may risk even my own life. They were loyal worshipers of Yahweh, one writer says. These men were characterized by the love of God, which then caused them to do what they did. And the cry comes out. The righteous man is perishing, and nobody seems to care. For the righteous man, look at the end of verse one, is taken away. If you have um, the NIV, it says he is to be spared from evil, or the King James says the evil to come. Here's the cool thing. Here's the flip side of it. You may kill a righteous man. Jesus said don't fear him who kills the body and after that he has no power over you, right? But what God does in his divine purposes is he might allow that person to be taken away from the earth to spare him from what? Look at the end of the the verse. To spare him from evil or to take him away from evil or to take him away from the evil to come. Can you think of some Bible characters where this happened? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In the days of Noah, Noah was obviously vexed by what he saw. He was a preacher of righteousness. He built the boat, apparently, for 120 years. He went through a lot of stuff, but God saved him on the ark. Lot was spared from Sodom and Gomorrah, but here the issue is death. And in the case of Enoch, he was translated, or he's a picture of the rapture of the church, And the one who is spared in this way, look at verse two, he enters into what? Peace. They rest in their beds, in context, these devout men, each one who walked in his upright way. If you have an NIV, it says, those who walk uprightly, verse two, enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. And so I don't know, I haven't done the homework on it, but I don't know if this is where rest and peace, you know, came from. But the truth of the matter is if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will enter into rest when you die. The very thing that we're so fearful about is the very thing that in this verse says we might be spared from further evil. Now, none of us are looking for a quick exit plan that I know of, but here's the point. The good news of the scripture is simply this. God has another way of dealing with things, and these people enter into the rest of the Lord. They will be spared from further evil, and this is the idea of the verse. But come here, now it transfers to the, the people of the day. You sons of a sorceress, I bet you've never called somebody that before. You son of a (laughs) sorcerer. Offspring of an adulterer, but that is a biblical thing. So if you knew someone who was actually a son of a sorceress, I suppose you could say that. Offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Now it's going to come to the people. And the people of Israel have gotten in trouble with what? What's their main problem been all through the book of Isaiah? idols. And what were some of the things that were done around the worship of these idols? One thing was sorcery. The sorcerer is one who allows a spirit, a supernatural spirit to overtake her, to become a medium by which the spirit may give direction or speak. And God said, when you enter into the land that I'm going to give you you are not to learn the detestable practices of those people. You are not to go into uh, spiritism or sorcery or witchcraft. That stuff is off limits. And here the uh, Hebrew word is onan. And it means in this context, a sorceress is one who acts covertly, who practices magic. And notice, not only is this one a son of a sorceress, but also an offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. And when we've looked at spiritual applications of those words, we realize that there's a combination of sorcery, which is witchcraft or mediumship, combined with the idea of spiritual prostitution or cheating on God. God called Israel his bride. There was a marriage relationship between the two. And when Israel... Cheated with foreign gods, you know what they did? They committed spiritual prostitution and adultery. They left the covenant. They left the covenant that they had promised that they would do. We'll keep all those words, we promise. And they were warned over and over again and they did the very thing that God warned them not to do. They got involved with these false gods and goddesses and with that came this whole life of debauchery. In the New Testament, when you look at the idea of sorcery, it's the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our English word what? Pharmacy. Pharmacy. And a lot of the ancient practices involved drug use or some sort of uh, altered state of consciousness where you would open yourself up to these so-called spirits. And people were messing with this stuff, and it was combined with religious worship So oftentimes, as they worship these gods and goddesses, they would engage in very real adultery and prostitution. And they would get involved in these things that open themselves up to all kinds of things. And yes, brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun because there's different expressions of it, but it's all over the place today. Uh, You're gonna see in a moment that there's gonna be mention of sexual sin Uh, These are all the things that were going on in the land of Israel. And when confronted with these things, notice what it says Against whom do you jest? It seems like when they were confronted, verse 4, they joked about it. Against whom do you open wide your mouth and, notice, stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? If you have an NIV or ESV, it says, Who are you mocking? It appears that the message of the Lord came to these people, and God said, stop your detestable practices. Don't sow to that. Don't do that anymore. And they mocked God. And they mocked the messengers of God, and they said, oh, yeah, right, and stuck out their tongues and said, you got to be joking. Have you ever heard that before? you got to be kidding me, Christian. What do you mean that's wrong? What do you mean I shouldn't be doing that? You see, and these are all doorways. And those of you who have been um, involved in these lifestyles, you know they become a doorway by which the devil can get a foothold in your life. And when they were confronted with it, well, they just laughed it off. You are those, verse five, who inflame yourselves among the oaks. Oaks is a general word for a big tree here under every luxuriant tree, and of course the trees were connected with their pagan worship, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. I'm gonna read several versions. New King James says, "Inflaming yourselves, verse five, with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. And NIV says, you burn with lust among the oaks, And under every spreading tree, you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. Go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. So a big issue in our day is sexual sin. But another big issue in our day is abortion. Um, It's obviously a very devastating issue It's a sin against God. um, But it's something that we can all say that maybe in our pre-Christian days we were touched by in some way. And the warning goes out from God. You need to reconsider what you're doing because God ties their sexual sin to their slaughter of the children. And what we know today is even with all the discussion about the abortion issue, all the discussion about, you know, What should be the special cases? Well, let me say this to you. Wherever you stand on the issue, whether someone was raped or there was some sort of incest, and we decry that, that's horrible. If a child was born to that, would we then kill the child for the sin of the parents? That doesn't make sense. Whatever excuse we want to use, and that's the most extreme excuse, but let's say it's a poverty excuse. Let's say someone gets pregnant and says, I can't afford to take care of this child. Well, we wouldn't say, I'm going to kill my two-year-old because I can't afford it anymore. What we would do is find an alternative. We would say, if I can't take care of this child, then there's adoption options and many parents who want to adopt. There may be a family member who can help me. But the child should not pay for our sin. Why would we do that? Then we cause what's called a double evil to happen. You may be reeling from a mistake that you made or something that you're wrestling over, but then if that child is killed, then all of a sudden you can't change that. That's over And now you, and this is what they don't tell you at Planned Parenthood, now you get to live with that for the rest of your life. Those are deep pains, and I'm not here to condemn anybody because we've all made our mistakes. But this is the lie that we hear, and I'm gonna say this. Last night I'm watching the Democratic Convention, and I hear a speech given by the wife of President um, Obama, very articulate woman, very beautiful woman, Presented herself very well. But she talked about a woman's right to choose. That our health care is our own and nobody should tell us what we're going to do with our bodies. And a bunch of people started standing up in the convention hall and applauding her. She was talking about reproductive rights. She was talking about the right to take the life of your child if you want to. They call that pro-choice. That's the rhetoric that we get. It's killing a baby, but they call it pro-choice. So people are standing up in the hall, and as I'm watching this, the camera pans to a little five-year-old on top of her daddy's shoulder, and he's standing up applauding, and then the camera pan to a little baby that was sitting on uh, their mother's lap. And I was thinking, and then a lot of the speech was about the two daughters that they love, and I was just thinking, the irony and hypocrisy of this statement the camera's showing children that we're talking about loving so much, and yet in your last statement, you just talked about killing them. There's something wrong. And all it is is couched in rhetoric. There's no pretty way to say it. We are killing babies. And when you take the veil off the hidden statue, you find out exactly what it is it's a baby. And it leaves women who have gone through this and men devastated. And yes, you can get through it. And yes, there's total forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But man, I'll tell you what, growing up and when I was in my late teens and I got saved when I was about 20 years old, I made a ton of mistakes. And I wish someone would have gotten in my face and told me the truth. Because I had some bad counselors too. And I I had made a whole mess of trouble for myself but I'm telling you now from the perspective of knowing God's heart and God's truth, we can, we can give speeches all day long, but the reality of what's really happening, God knows. And we can move people by speeches, after all, we know we're moved by speeches. If people present themselves well, and there's a powerful speech, you can move a nation. You can get a nation to stand up and fight against an enemy by a speech, but God is not going to measure our nation by speeches. He's going to measure our nation by actions. And that's what these chapters are about. They're about whether or not we will back up what we say by our actions. Now, there were two aspects of the Canaanite cults. Are you in Ezekiel 16? First, the fertility cult associated with the evergreen tree as a symbol of life and expressed in, there's no other way to say it, they expressed it in orgies. Second, the cult of Molech, with its demand for human sacrifice. These were two gods, and they were also goddesses. There were also goddesses associated with them. To the Canaanite mind, the land of Canaan, which Israel would inherit, sexual acts performed in the sanctuary were directed to Baal in the hope of reminding him of his work of fertilizing humans, animals, and land and stimulating him to function in that capacity. The offering of children was presumably a propitiation to the God, a sacrifice to the God of the underworld, a charm against death. But to Isaiah, the offering of children was not a religious choice or an offering to a a God. To Isaiah, it was nothing less than treating children like they were cattle to be slaughtered. And if you read Ezekiel 16, and I know some of this is hard to take, you will see God's heart, and here's what he says. 16, 13. Ezekiel, oh, do I have the right place? Hmm. Yeah, there was some earlier verses I wanted to show you. Okay, 14, 16, 14. Then your fame went forth among the nations, Ezekiel sixteen fourteen, on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot. Because of your fame and, your, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your clothes Made for yourself high places, this is where they would commit these acts of idolatry, of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels, made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them, and offered my oil, and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you fine flour, oil with honey, 19, which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma, so it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, 20, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them, and the firstborn was supposed to be dedicated to God. You sacrificed them to the idols, to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? Notice what God says. You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. And besides all your abominations and your harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your own blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And this is hard to take, but here's the Bible. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. And God just flat out calls them out. Look at verse 36. Thus says the Lord God, because of your lewdness, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols. And because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I shall gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I shall gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And thus I shall judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I shall bring on you the blood of wrath of je- and jealousy, and I shall give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you, and cut you into pieces with their swords, and they will burn your houses with fire, and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I shall stop you. And notice the the motive of God. Then I shall stop you from playing the harlot and you will no longer pay your lovers. Wow. Sobering stuff. But here's what God says to Israel. He says, look, this is is my view of what you've been doing. And uh, lest we go back to Isaiah, rush into a conclusion of the why, You know, it is love that warns. Um, In the Nelson Study Bible, I'm just gonna read this because I think this was said well. Ezekiel showed the people how judgment was a natural outcome of God's holy wrath against sin. It was also a loving God's means of disciplining his people to correct their beliefs, redirect their behavior, and restore intimate fellowship between himself and them. Thus, Ezekiel preached to the exiles the imminence of God's judgment, and the need for individual and national repentance. If God didn't care about them, he would just let them go their way. But he cared enough to say something. And notice how this, they got into this so deeply. They would go up on the high hills, and they would also go among six, six, the smooth stones of the ravine, is your portion. The Lord was supposed to be their portion, but the smooth stones, which many believe point to the the idols themselves, which also can mean slippery, and we think that Isaiah probably has a little nuance there because the gods are things that you will slip on and fall. They're your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a libation. You offer to them like you're supposed to offer to the Lord. You have made a grain offering, And God says, shall I relent concerning these things? God asks a question. He knows what he's gonna do, but he says this, and maybe you could answer this question if you were sitting in God's court. If God turned to you and said, what do you think I should do? And you were sitting up there, what would you say? If the veil was off all the evil and you were able to see it all in front of you at one moment in time, and God turned to you and said, should I relent? Should I give him another chance? Should I give him another decade? What would you say? I guess it would depend on whether or not uh, it involved you maybe very, very directly. But that's how we can detach ourselves sometimes from what's going on. Notice upon a high and lofty mountain, you've made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Um, Basically, This was sexual defection. They went up on the high mountain and there they made their bed. They had a spirit of harlotry. That's Hosea 4.12. It it permeated the land. And he says in verse 8, and behind the door and the doorpost. Remember the doorpost was supposed to be the place where the word of God was written. Where you would make your stand and say, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. You were to write it on the doorpost. You were to, you were to make sure that the word of God was present so that people knew what your house was about. Well, behind the door and the doorpost where the word of God should be, you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me. You tried to hide it, but you have uncovered yourself and have gone up, have gone up and made your bed wide. This means to bring the privacy of the bedroom into the public view. Wow. And you don't think the book of Isaiah is relevant? Think of the verse. It means to take what happens in the bedroom and bring it into the public view. Hmm. Someone was just talking about a magazine, GQ magazine, where there's all these, these racy things in it. You can't even go to the market anymore with trying to cover up your little boy's eyes. It's theater brothers. It's all right there. It's all, you know, the, we have been desensitized, folks, let's face it. Commercials, I mean, we just keep, the bar just keeps getting lowered and lowered and lowered, and, and here we are. And God says, this is what you did. You put the bedroom, what was supposed to be behind closed doors, and when it's in God's time and God's economy, he made it. If it's in the marriage covenant, it's right, it's good, it's pure, it's not defiled in the marriage bed. But when it's taken out of its place, it becomes dirty. And that's what happened. And God said, you know, the place where my word should be, now right behind my word, is this evil. And he says, you made agreement for yourself with them, with the idols, you have loved their bed, you have looked on their manhood, which probably speaks here of their nudity, and you have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and here's the end result. And when you did all this, you made them go down to Sheol. What's Sheol? It's the grave. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. So we have these promises that are out there. You know, just, you just do this. You just live it up. It'll just be fine. And you go there and you do that and you're not told the next day story. You're not told about what it can do. Again, you know, the Peter talks about the lust of the flesh even waging war in our souls. And let's face it, it is a struggle. Paul admitted in Romans 7, it's gonna be hard. After all, that's why it's called temptation. It's tempting. If you didn't, If it didn't tempt you, it would be no big deal. You just say, I don't like that, I don't want that. But temptation, this is a newsflash, by definition is tempting. That's why it's hard to deal with. That's why you need the power of the Lord and the covering of the armor of God. You are tired out by the length of your road, verse 10. See if that hits some of you. Tired. You know, people, people talk about this. They say, I'm sick and tired. This is verse 10, of being sick and tired. And then they make their proclamation, usually on December 31st. And I will never ever do that again. You know, they plant their flag, they're, they're right in the soft cement. And then the next day, all of a sudden that's a, a distant memory. And then you say to yourself,
0: ah, it's only January 1st.
1: What happened? Your flesh is what happened. Your flesh always wants to be satisfied. You always have to push down the desires of your flesh. Pastor Chuck put it in great imagery. He said, the old man's dead, but every now and then the hand just comes out of the grave, right? And you just gotta push it back down. Stay down there! And even tell it, shut up! Whatever you gotta do. You were tired out by the length of your road with all this stuff you were doing. Look at verse 10. Yet you did not say... It's hopeless. It would have been good had you said that. Because if you said it's hopeless, you might turn to God. You might say, you know, if we've all come, hopefully, you've all come to that moment where you realize you can't do it. You know, and hopefully, you've realized you can't live the Christian life in your own power, too. Have you come to that realization? Right, you need the Spirit of God, right? So if you said it's hopeless, I can't do this, those are the times when many people are born again in the cauldron of adversity, man. Lots of Christian testimonies happen right there. But instead of, you did not say it's hopeless, you found what? Renewed strength. Therefore, you did not faint. You just kept on going, man. Yeah, I can do this again, yeah. Not in a good sense. And God says, of whom were you worried and fearful, 11, when you lied and did not remember me? nor give me a thought was i not silent even for a long time so you did not fear me god says because i didn't immediately deal with you because i seemed to be silent in your life when it came to your choices and lifestyle you didn't fear me anymore and that's that's the way we really are let's face it it takes sometimes a major wake up call for us to turn around we find renewed strength to run from god and then we get smacked and we say, oh, God. <laughs> hey, we've all done it, so we just confess it. This is how we are, right? We've got to come to that point. And God says in um, Psalm fifty twenty one, these things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you, but I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. And then God says what he wants. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Wow, very clear. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. Even your own good works are filthy rags before the Lord. We'll see that in a few chapters in Isaiah. When you cry out, God says, okay, if you want them so bad and you keep running towards them, let your collection of idols deliver you, 13. But the wind will carry all of them up and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. I don't know what's in your way tonight, but get it out of the way. This is a similar idea to stumbling blocks, and God says, get those obstacles out of the way. For thus says the high and exalted one. Now we're coming to remedy, and I know all of you are desperate for it. And this chapter is actually going to end on a pretty positive note. I just want you to know. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, the eternal one, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Holiness is uh, you know, the characteristic nature of God. And also, what does God say? With a contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You could be asking yourself, but what's in it for the broken soul? What if I am crushed by my sin? What if I realize in a moment of time how desperately I need God? What should I do? And God says, if you are contrite, which is another way to, to be crushed or to make yourself low before God, you know what he will do? The high and exalted one who dwells in, in, he's in holiness You know, heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. He will dwell not only there, but he will come and dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit. And what's his goal when he comes to you? Look at the middle of 15. He comes to revive you to life. That's his work. The moment that you say, Lord, I'm crushed by my sin, even as a Christian, sometimes we need to be here. I'm overwhelmed by the hopelessness that it brings and the idols have betrayed me. God says, the moment that you are broken, he will come, he will make his way, if you will, from heaven and dwell with you, but not just be with you, he will come to revive your heart. That's his his goal. He gets you to a place of brokenness to bring you life. Now, I could line you guys up for the next two hours, couldn't I? And you'd all have your story, wouldn't you? I was there. I remember sometimes laying on a bed before God and saying, if you will just be merciful to me, I will give you my life. We've probably all had that. You know, those times in our lives. Notice how God connects humility and contriteness with revival, we talk a lot about revival in the church. We want revival. You know when revival comes to a life? When we're contrite. When we're broken, truly broken over our sin. One writer says revival is the manifest presence of God. It's the immediacy of God. It's the kiss of God. It's the nearness of God in his goodness and power. Revival is a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, Acts three nineteen and 20. It's a season in the life of the church or in an individual when God causes normal ministry to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It is not foolish hysterics. It is is God, listen, becoming overwhelmingly real to us. You see, when we get real with God, he becomes more real to us. And that's what he doesn't want us doing is he doesn't want us playing religious games. He doesn't want us faking it and just kind of limping by. He wants you revived. For I will not contend, 16, forever. Neither will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I made. God's grace will prevail. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his, way, his ways, but notice I will what? I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. I wrote in my notes, God heals, he leads, he restores, he comforts, he wipes away tears that we've even created. Creating for this life the praise of the lips, which will be Peace, peace, that's double shalom there. To him who is far, who maybe feels far, and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The double shalom is powerful because shalom means, in the ancient Hebrew picture language, God is the one who destroys the authority that establishes chaos. A double shalom, shalom means peace, well-being, wholeness in every aspect of life. And when God revives you, you start living like you never lived before. And see, that's why the chapter's cool, because the chapter's hard, and you sit there and you, you go, I really would like to leave now. This is really, really hard. And then God, all of a sudden, just just rushes the light of grace And he shows you that we're all in this boat. And God comes in with the reviving flood of the Holy Spirit and says, now let me heal you. Forget about those idols. They're not gonna do anything for you. I had to get your attention, and yes, I did. And now that you're broken, and now that you're contrite, and now that you're listening, here I come. And he comes in, and he breathes life. Not dead idols, the life of God comes into you and he comes and he dwells and he makes his holy habitation in you and he gives you wholeness in every area of your life. Double shalom, peace, peace. Destroys the author of chaos in your life. Get out of here, Satan. You've got no place in this life anymore. And all of a sudden, layer by layer in what we call sanctification, he brings deeper levels of peace and joy and the likeness of God in your life, and you just go, whoa. And the closer you get to him, the more you are blown away by his goodness. But as we end the chapter, the wicked are like the tossing, or the New King James says, they're like the troubled sea, for it cannot be quiet. You know somebody like this? And its waters toss up refuse and mud do you know someone who's always seems to be in a storm? Every time they call you, you won't believe what happened. You hear the wind, <laughs> the spritz comes through the phone, and salt water, and you ah, you know you don't want to talk to him anymore. What's going on now? Well, this happened, and, this happened. and the muck and mire has washed up onto the shore over and over and over again, and you say, dude. Are you ever going to make an adjustment or maybe sail your boat elsewhere? Well, I, uh, I mean, how many dead bodies need to wash up on the shore? God says there is no peace. This is from God, says my God, for the wicked. There's no true peace for the wicked. Now, we got a reference in verse 19 to something found in Ephesians 2, our final verse. verses. Go to Ephesians in the New Testament. Ephesians 2. So we're talking about that peace, right? To those who are uh, near, those who are far, God will create this praise on our lips, peace, peace. We'll offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And then he says, I will, uh, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, I will heal him. Now look at Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Ephesians two eleven, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Ephesians 2.13, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were afar off, and this is the Isaiah passage now, have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. At least it's a reference there to Isaiah. For he himself is our, what? He's our peace. The, The Greek word is Irene, the Hebrew word is shalom. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Here's how he did it. By abolishing in his flesh, think of the cross now, Isaiah 53, the enmity, the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that, he, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, Jew and Gentile, to God through what? Through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity or the hostility. And he came, Jesus came, and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace, here's our passage, to those who are near. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, in Jesus, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Father, we thank you that despite all the mistakes that we have all made and the bumps and bruises that we even can sense as Christians and the the wrestling with our flesh, which seems like at different seasons of our lives it can be more difficult than others, You've given us victory, you have brought us healing. You have spoken words of life, you have brought true revival. You've revived us from the dead and brought us life. You've brought us peace, we were far away, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We're Gentiles on the other side of the world, really, and, and you brought us near. And you did that because you are a gracious God. You're a benevolent God. And we are so grateful for your love and your goodness and even your correction because your correction has a purpose. It's to bring us to our senses that we might see our need for you and not perish. And so, Lord, as believers tonight, give us strength, give us encouragement. Let those obstacles that sometimes get in our way be removed. Let us with sincerity of heart offer the Fruit of our lips, giving thanks to your name. May we have words of peace on our lips constantly. May we say, like Paul did here, Jesus himself is our shalom. He is our peace. And whatever might be robbing us of peace today, Lord, if it's sin or if it's um, maybe anxiety, I pray that we'll be able to release that to you tonight and trust in you for all the areas of our lives because we know you love us so much and We're so grateful. We ask all of this. I ask your blessing upon the precious people here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to He Revives the Heart of the Contrite on Walk in Truth. That's Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 57. If you missed any part of today's program, you can listen to Walk in Truth on our free Living Truth app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our new mini-sodes called A Step Closer. And just so you know, we have free apologetic events from time to time, and they're called 633, and that's based on Matthew 633. Pastor Michael invites special guests, professionals in their fields, to talk about hard topics that affect the culture. In the past, we've had guest speakers that have talked about the issue of racism, Roe v. Wade, miracles, and how we as Christians can talk about those issues. You can watch those talks and many others on our free Living Truth app and on our website, walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Now here's Pastor Michael before we go.
1: A lot of you who are in the Christian community have been praying for revival for a long time. I'm one of them. You know, by God's grace, I've been walking with him since the late 1980s. And that's a good amount of time. And I've seen little pockets of revival But I long to see a revival, indeed, a great awakening happen, not just in America, but that's where my heart is, but really all around the world. And the good news is that the church is exploding in places like China and the Middle East. Uh, You're not hearing a lot of those stories, but there's incredible stories of growth and miracles in those places. Would to God, oh Lord, let it happen here. Let us see a powerful move of the Holy Spirit here. Revive our hearts. You say, what's the key? The key is in Isaiah 57. The Lord will move powerfully. He will uh, come near. He will do a mighty work in the heart of the contrite. Contrition is the key to revival, at least one of the keys. What does that mean? It means brokenness, humility. It means, oh Lord, we need you. Would you work in our land again? I know many of you have been crying out for years. Let's continue to pray and not lose heart. Well, the rest of the teaching in Isaiah 57 is now available to you on our podcast app. Just search for Walk in Truth on any of your favorite podcast apps. You might listen to iHeart. You might have Spotify, whatever it may be. Uh, search Walk in Truth. You'll be able to listen to the remainder of the content of Isaiah 57 plus new content from Walk in Truth called A Step Closer, where we've dealt with the resurrection in some depth. Uh, that'll bolster your faith. We've dealt with the Roe v. Wade leak decision group discussions. Uh, many sods we're calling them and they are powerful and I know they will benefit your life. Hey, if you have a topic that you would like for us to consider for a future podcast on a, a step closer, a ministry of walk in truth, would you email us today at contact at walkintruth.com? That's contact. At walkintruth.com. This is Pastor Michael Lance. So glad you're with us. God bless you. We'll see you right here, Lord willing, tomorrow.
0: And don't forget that Walk in Truth is a listener-supported ministry. Your financial partnership helps us broadcast on this station. How long have you been listening? Could you help us pay for some airtime on this station? Help us continue in this ministry. A monthly partnership of at least $5 a month is all we ask. If you're blessed by this ministry and believe others can be too, please visit walkintruth.com now to donate. That's walkintruth.com. And remember, if you'd like to hear the rest of Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 57 called, He Revives the Heart of the Contrite, you'll find the entire message on the free Living Truth app, or you can follow Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app. And join us tomorrow for Pastor Michael's teaching in Isaiah 58 called, The Kind of Fasting God Wants." I'm Mike Massaro. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth where it's our goal to equip you with God's truth to all people.